Well, good morning. Ah, everybody's awake. That's great. So uh, it's good to be here. I've been here uh, once or twice before. Now, what Ken didn't say is he was my campaign manager. And we almost won. We got within two points, and then we ran out of time. But out of that failure, that very public failure, God led me to lots of other really cool things uh, to happen. So I hope at the end of this message, uh, you don't say that was almost a good message. (laughs) So I'll I'll try my best not to do that. Uh, And uh, Pastor Ryan, what were you thinking giving the microphone to a former uh, trial lawyer? (laughs) You know, lawyers have the reputation of talking too much. But on the other hand, maybe that was a good decision because if you've been around a lot of top military officers, they don't talk a lot. So maybe, maybe it's a good decision because I'm kind of in between. I try to find the balance between not talking too much and uh, listening. So I'm grateful for this opportunity because it gives me an opportunity to speak about things that I really want to talk about, which is public service, the government. And I'll tell you some stories based on my 30 years of public service in the Navy Reserve, in the Navy, U.S. Justice Department. I also worked for local government. I worked for state government. I worked as a civilian White House fellow for a year in Washington. So you're probably thinking at this point, that's a lot of jobs in 30 years. I guess he can't keep a job. But that's okay because uh, every job has become better. And here I am now teaching college students at Wheaton. And one of the things that I've learned about my students is something one of my daughters told me. That was, Dad, tell stories. People are interested in stories. So I'll tell you some real-life stories, and hopefully we'll be able to draw some truth out of that. So I've come up with, uh, with some rules for public service based on my many years working in the uh, government. And uh, I don't have time to go over all 20. We'd be here until... Goodness knows what time, and that's not good. But I will tell you this. One of my favorite rules is this. Never work for an organization whose mission you don't believe in. I made that mistake one time in which I worked for the state taxation and revenue department. I was a revenuer, as they say in Appalachia. And my job was to squeeze money out of people and give legal advice to the state. And I can think of one case in particular where I really felt like a bad guy, like a bad government guy, when this nice older lady who had a private business was not aware of this thing called uh, gross receipts. I don't think Illinois has that, but in New Mexico, they had this thing in which you had to declare your earnings and pay based on what your business was. And she'd never heard of it. Years went by. She owed the government lots of money and then penalties and interest, and she didn't know what to do. So she reached out to me in a letter and asked for a waiver, and I had my staff research it, and I had to tell her, sadly, there's no exemption. You have to pay this. So I felt really bad after that, and I thought, you know, I think I'm in the wrong business here. Uh, So I, I left that and went into the uh, private sector working for a a friend's uh, law firm. So as I mentioned, I've worked multiple levels of government. I worked for the U.S. Secretary of Transportation. I've uh, had the honor of meeting three presidents, one Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at the Supreme Court, 
lots of senators and congresspersons and some governors. So I'll try to share a few things I've learned about criminal justice, civil rights, national security. But above all, I hope that we view this through the lens of Scripture because as believers, as followers of Christ, everything has to be viewed through the lens of God's Word. And I was fortunate to be raised by missionaries who were assigned to Panama. Uh, my parents were great believers. They, they set a firm foundation that I'm trying to pass on to my daughters. Two of my daughters are here. They've got two older sisters that are on the east and west coast. So we're trying our best to pass along the godly heritage that I got. So what's my first story? Well, as you all know, sometimes the government does the wrong thing. And in this case, it was the 1990s. I was defending police officers in lawsuits, and in this case, the police went to the wrong house. They executed a search warrant at the wrong residence. They arrested the owner without probable cause. Imagine if that was your house and the SWAT team shows up, they kick your way in, they uh, use a little, much, a little too much force, they handcuff you, and then they realize, oops wrong house. A lot of you would have probably sued. And this guy thought about suing, but all he really wanted was an apology. And my boss, the city attorney, thought it's, it's, a, it's a ruse. They want us to admit liability so they can sue and have our letter as exhibit A. And I said, I don't think so, boss. I've talked to him, and all he, all he really wants is an apology. So I, I talked my boss into writing a letter of apology. We sent it to the gentleman, and guess what? No lawsuit. All he wanted was an apology. So in that case, I felt like I was doing some good government work there and we saved the taxpayers a little bit of money. I, I think we also got his door fixed, which is probably a good thing since we caused that damage. I also lived in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. Not 10 consecutive years, but I started back in the 80s during the Reagan era, and then I finished most recently in 2014. And, you know, when you think of Washington, D.C., what do you think of? You think of government. You think of the beautiful Capitol Hill, the Supreme Court building. You think of uh, the power of the government. If you visited there, you don't believe how big our government is until you walk around Washington, and these massive buildings and marble are there. But I think of love. And why do I think of love? Because that's where I met my wife, Cynthia. She was uh, a single college student working. I was a single Navy JAG officer. And uh, that's where I met her 28 years later, uh, mother of four great kids. So Washington, D.C. is a lot of things, government, the military, politics, but it's also, to me at least, love. So I want to discuss three things in the time that I have allotted. Number one, how did we get the government we have now in America? Number two, what does God's word say about how we should view government? Because we all know as Christians, God's word is sufficient for all things. It applies to all aspects of our life. And number three, if you believe our country was founded by Christians, which I do, 
What should our relationship be to that government? And I've entitled my message, Dissidents, Separatists, and Christians. And if you know the word dissident, it means to dissent. It means you disagree with something. And in this case, the founders of the United States were dissidents. They disagreed with what their country was doing. They're also separatists because they wanted to separate themselves from the bad theology that was existing in their home country. So, I want to talk to you about one year in the 2,000 or so years since Christ lived. And it was a bad year for God's people. It was a bad year for the church. Let me tell you what was going on. The government had turned against Christians. The government had passed a punitive national law that required, let me repeat that, required church attendance to a specific denomination. Could you imagine that? If the president said you have to go to the Church of America? And everyone had to attend church once a week or be fined. And the fines were steep. And there were penalties for holding unofficial services outside of the official church, which included imprisonment and fines. As a matter of fact, two Christian leaders who violated this law were executed for sedition. Sedition is still a crime under federal law. It means to plan the overthrow of the national government. It's a very serious charge, but you don't see prosecuted very often. Fourteen bishops were fired. Could you imagine if, if Congress fired cardinals and bishops and pastors? It's just unthinkable now, but in this country it happened. And they passed this law, which proves my own theory that the longer the name of the law, the worse it probably is. Because here's the name of the law, an act for the uniformity of common prayer and divine service in the church and the administration of the sacraments. Wow, say that with one breath. So common prayer, divine service, and sacraments. So the government was telling people how to do that. And this terrible law lasted over 100 years. And I should also tell you that this country that passed this law was an alleged Christian country. What year was it, you may ask? 1549. And the country was England before it became Great Britain. The Christians that were targeted by this terrible law were called separatists. They were one of many dissident groups that existed who did not want the government telling them how to run their faith. And I'm going to read you a list of some of these other dissident groups. Some you've heard, some you've never heard of. So Anabaptists, I think you've probably heard of it, the Anabaptists, right? Barrowists. What's a barrow? Maybe some Tolkien fans can tell us what a barrow is. Brownists, started by Mr. Brown. Diggers. I have no idea what they believed in. Here's one of my favorites. Enthusiasts. Maybe these are enthusiastic Christians. That's probably not a bad thing. Fifth, monarchists. Grindletonians. Levelers, those of you in the construction business may like the, that, that name, leveler. 
And for the Harry Potter fans out there, Muggletonians. <laughs> Philadelphians. Quakers, I think we've all heard of Quakers. Here's one I wouldn't want to be called, a ranter. So if you rant a lot, maybe in religious service, that's what you're called. Sabbatarians, seekers, and then finally, we've all heard of the Puritans. And that's the group I'm going to focus on for just a little bit. And these Puritans were fed up with the government interfering with their faith. The name comes from the word purify because they believed that the Church of England wasn't sufficiently purified from certain Catholic practices. And they wanted to purify the doctrine and worship as well as personal piety. So they, they believed that God called us to be pure. Now, when you hear the term Puritan, can you just shout out what you, what's the first word that pops into your head? Say again. Straight? Strict. Yes. What else? I'm sorry? Plymouth Rock. Yes. What else? Pil- pil- yep, pilgrims. How about this? No fun. Gray, dour, no joy. And one of the fruits of the faith is joy, right? Well, one of my professors wrote a book on the Puritans in which he challenged uh, this notion that the Puritans were actually full of joy. They, uh, they just didn't like what the government was asking them to do. So when they came here, they, they were as joyful as you can be under the circumstances. So they left England, they went to Holland. I spent a summer in Holland, and it's a great place, but it's, it's, it's a different culture, and that's what the Puritans found. They didn't stay there very long. You know, their kids were probably speaking Dutch, and maybe English was a second language. They didn't like that. So they decided to join other Puritans who were already in Jamestown. So they set sail. And any sailors out here? Anybody sail Lake Michigan or ever... Well, one of the worst places to sail in the fall is the North Atlantic. The weather is unpredictable. There are high seas. It's, it's, it's awful. But they risked that when they left England, aiming toward Jamestown. Remember, this is pre-GPS. So they aimed toward Virginia, hit some storms, and ended up in Massachusetts at, uh, near Providence Town. It took them two months. One passenger died, but another passenger was born. And this is great. This is a great timing, too. We have a baby crying. Because the name of the baby was Oceanus. So they named the baby Oceanus after his birth. So once they got there, they decided, well, what do we want to do now? We're in the new world. Well, being educated, literate Christians, they wanted to sign a contract. They wanted to draw up a document that would control their settlement. And here's what it says in part. I don't have time to read you all of this. But let me read you this a little bit. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancements of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, we here solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic 
And it goes on talking about establishing just and equal laws. Let's do a hard stop here. Wait a minute. Weren't these the ones that were persecuted by the national government? Why are they honoring their king and country? Their king and country turned against them. Why did they feel it necessary to mention in this document that they had to honor God? Got that. Country? I don't understand that. Well, I'll get into that just in a second. But this document was known as a Mayflower Compact. And without a doubt, they mentioned their Christian faith. It wasn't a general deistic faith. It wasn't a faith in the by and by. It wasn't a faith in the cosmic forces of the universe. They said themselves, the Christian faith. So what, what can we learn from this contract? Well, despite the persecution they'd suffered, these Puritans wanted to honor their God, their king, and their country. They could have condemned the king and country, but they didn't. They also were intent on passing laws that stress fairness and equality. And these dissenters, these dissidents, these separatists, these troublemakers formed the political backbone of the country that became known as the United States. So in your in your spiritual ancestry are dissidents or dissenters or people who like to rock the boat, who didn't want to be told what to do by their government. So uh, I think that's interesting because I think Christians now view themselves as let's not rock the boat, let's, let's just let you know bygones be bygones. But our ancestors just a few hundred years ago left their country and started a new country. About 150 or so years later after this compact, uh, our founders wrote the Declaration of Independence. And I'll stop when I want you to fill in the word. Here's here's how it begins. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their... Now, why did Thomas Jefferson say creator? Why didn't he say government or Congress or the cosmic forces of good and evil. Well, because although he was not a Bible-believing Christian, he knew enough to know that the Creator, God, gave us these unalienable rights. So I don't want to pick on Mr. Jefferson. My wife is a University of Virginia grad where they still call him Mr. Jefferson like he lives next door. (laughs) But if you go to his home in uh, Monticello, you can see a Bible that he wrote. And what he did with a little sharp instrument is he actually took out verses he didn't like, and he created his own Bible. So uh, Mr. Jefferson was not what I would say a traditional Bible-believing Christian. He, he didn't have the NIV or the King James. He had the, the King Thomas version uh, of the Bible. But even a broken clock is right twice, right? So he was right on the mark when he talked about unalienable rights. Because the word unalienable is a legal term. When you own property, you can alienate it to someone else. You can transfer it, you can sell it, you can give it. But he said, no, these rights are unalienable. These are God-given rights that we can't give away. We can't sell these rights. So this is an important thing to keep in mind. 
A few years after Thomas Jefferson, the U.S. Constitution was drafted in 1787, and at the beginning, it was a thing called the preamble. Now, that's kind of an old-fashioned word. I think now we, we would say uh, a foreword or a preview. It's probably other words we would use. But at the beginning of our Constitution, it kind of lays out what's to come. And you've seen this probably many times. You've at least heard of this in your civics class. It says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common, promote the general, and secure the blessings of, you guys are good. We do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. So these duties are establishing justice. That's the first thing mentioned after a more perfect union. So in other words, a fair legal system, domestic tranquility, law and order. Our founders didn't want chaos in the streets. Number three, providing a common defense, or in other words, a strong military. Number four, promoting a general welfare or taking care of the least among us. So giving the words plainly written in the Mayflower Compact, the Declaration, and the Constitution, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have met my burden of proof. This country was founded on Christian principles. So don't let the, the revisionists tell you otherwise. We are not founded by a group of skeptics who are being hounded out of England and came up with something else. Our roots are biblically based. And our founding fathers and mothers were Christians. So what does God's word say? Because as, as, as important as these words are, I, I took an oath of office, which the local paper put on the front page of me. My hand was on this Bible. I was taking an oath of office, and the last three words were, so help me God. Not so help me Thomas Jefferson. So help me the USS Constitution. No, it was so help me God. And our presidents take that same oath of office. Our Supreme Court justices take that. Our members of Congress, our governors, our leaders, all our military officers take that vow. But what does God's word say about government? There is no first and second government. There is no first and second constitution in God's word. But there is, there are passages. So let's turn to Matthew 22. Verses 15 through 22. So chapter 22 of Matthew, verses 15 through 22. When the rustling stops, I'll, I'll read it for you. And the preface here is uh, the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus into criticizing the Roman Empire. That was probably a capital crime then to criticize Caesar. So, verse 15. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. 
Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then. Let me just take a break here. I love the flattery. And you know why people use flattery? A lot of times because it works. It didn't work on Jesus. So we'll go back. Verse 17. Tell us then. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. They said to him, So he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So Jesus avoided that trap. He could have said, I guess, don't pay taxes because the Roman Empire is corrupt. It's pantheistic. They have abominable practices in their temples. They kill people. They have slaves. He didn't say that. He said, pay your taxes. He didn't fall into their trap. And this Rome was not the beacon of democracy. Rome crushed all dissenters. Had the pilgrims lived in Rome, they would have been executed and probably crucified together as a group, men, women, and children. The Roman Empire conquered most of the known world through military force. And this was the empire that dreamed up one of the worst ways you can die, which is a slow and excruciating death called crucifixion. This is the kind of practice that our founders would call in the Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment. But we had no founding fathers during the first century A.D. And yet Jesus said, give to the government what is due them. So if Jesus didn't seek to criticize a corrupt, violent, pantheistic government, where does that leave us now in the 21st century? What about other forms of government? We don't live in an empire. What types of governments existed during the writing of the Bible? Well, not a whole lot of choice, folks. You had monarchies, kingdoms. In Egypt, there was a pharaoh, one pharaoh in charge. There were kings and queens in Persia. There was one Caesar in Rome. There's no mention of democracy. That would come much later. But God's word does talk about government. The clearest description that I could find was in Romans chapter 13. So let's turn to that. Romans chapter 13. And it's, uh, I would submit to you, pretty clear. So let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except for which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. 
They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, is, is this clear? Is there any question? Is there any asterisk that says, well, except for governments you don't like? It, you know, it doesn't say that. So, as Christians, we have to believe that God put this for a reason. He abhors chaos. He does, like, order. But what, but what happens when the government does wrong? That's the dilemma some people are finding themselves in. And what I go back to is this was written at the time of the Roman Empire. And as bad as things appear to us now in 2016, they are much worse during the time of Caesar. We, we don't have national leaders that persecute Christians. And by persecution, I mean doing what Nero did, which was dip Christians in, in tar and then light them afire as living torches for one of his parties. There isn't organized persecution in the way that the Roman Empire did, and the Christians had to put up with it for over 300 years. The culture was so violent that these guys called gladiators were entertainment. It was entertaining for the Roman people to go and watch people hack each other to death. Could you imagine that today? Our culture is not that violent compared to what was in existence then. So one biblical truth I believe is there is God expects us to obey the government authorities that he has placed over us. So that brings me to 2016. Where are we now? Do we have some honoring of God? I would say yes. We have a a Senate chaplain. The reason I I know that is I, I met him. He's a retired Navy admiral. Admiral Black. I took a group of Wheaton students in June and we met with the chaplain and that guy knows more scripture off the top of his head than anyone I've ever met. I mean, he must have photographic memory because he could just reel off the verses. Just really impressive. And I want to give you a little bit of hope too because I know there are lots of Christian brothers and sisters that are saying, we're in a pickle right now. We don't know who to vote for. Our country's going to hell in a handbasket. What What do we do? Let me offer you some, some green sprouts of, of hope. Because a lot of the people we met in this program, we met admirals, we met senators, congresspeople, we met a Supreme Court clerk, we met people in think tanks, we met journalists. And what my students told me was this. They said, Captain Iglesias, which is what they call me, there are a lot of Christians in Washington, D.C. You expect the chaplain in the Senate to be a Christian, but do you expect a three-star admiral in the Pentagon to share his faith? No. So there are good people. There are God's people working at the highest levels of our government. That's not to argue the fact that we are in a tough place right now. This is 
the most difficult political season I can think of, and, and I ran for office. So I have no easy solution for you, but let me give you a, a, another few ways in which we do honor God in our way. Every day Congress meets, it opens up in prayer. Our military has chaplains. What do our coins say? God we trust. So at the superficial level, we do honor God. But do we really honor God in the way that our founding dissidents and separatists did? Can we practice our faith in the way that we see fit without running afoul of some governmental regulation or practice? My answer is, it depends. If you're a Christian florist or a Christian baker, you may be forced to provide services to honor a wedding that you believe is unbiblical. And you may have to pay the price, at least at the lower level, to fight that because our beliefs are no longer the cultural norm. And I wish it weren't true. Our religious liberties are being chipped away at. And it goes beyond just what the government does. Our corporations are also training employees not to say Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Every time I hear that, I think of Ebenezer Scrooge saying, Bah, humbug. It's just, it's like nails on a chalkboard. So I normally say, well, Merry Christmas. But they can't say that because our culture is shifting. But they will take your Christian money. What about uh, Christmas parties? You remember, those of you that are older, you remember your office had Christmas parties? I don't call that anymore. Holiday parties. So what holidays are we celebrating? And a lot of scholars are calling our country post-Christian, and that's very troubling. Because what's being exalted right now is the God of tolerance. Everything must be tolerated. Every philosophy, every practice. Well, asterisk, except for Bible-believing Christians. We won't tolerate them. And we're being, whether we like it or not, folks, we're becoming separatists. But the culture is pushing us into separation. So we're saying, man, David, this is depressing. Is there any hope? Are we in a dark tunnel? Is that a light I see or is that the train coming? I want to encourage you. God has sustained his people for thousands of years. God has sustained his church through unbelievable persecution. And when Jesus sent out his Disciples, in Matthew 10, 16, he said to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Because he knew he was sending us out into a place where there are wolves. And I know this is not PC to say this, but what are wolves? They're predators, right? They hunt in packs and they tear up animals and they eat them alive. Wolves are vicious predators. And Jesus sent his disciples saying, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. 
but, but sheep that are protected. So God protected Joseph as he served as a prime minister of Egypt. The Lord protected Daniel as he helped run the government. And he'll protect us. So the last verse I want to look at is what makes a godly leader, what makes an ungodly leader. And I would sub- submit to you that the best example is found in 1 Samuel. Remember, there's a transition of power between Saul, the party of Saul, and the party of David. Saul served for 43 years as king of Israel. And remember, the people of Israel wanted a king. You know, all these other countries get kings, and you know, we don't have a king. So God just finally said, okay. So they picked Saul. And then God took the mantle away from Saul. And turn to Samuel 15, 11, And God says, I regret that I've made King Saul because he has turned away from me. He has not carried out my instructions. So God rejects the party of Saul for two reasons. He turned away from God and he did not carry out God's instructions. Those sins ended not only Saul's government, but his line. His son Jonathan was killed. David, on the other hand, the party of David was picked because he was a man after God's own heart. Did David sin? Absolutely. Spectacular sins. Conspiracy to commit murder. Adultery. Murder. But he repented, and God viewed that and credited him as that. So I want to just end this by saying we're at a crucial time and place in our country's history. I am hopeful that we'll get through this. I lived through the Vietnam era like most of you did. I remember when the Pentagon was surrounded by war protesters. I remember when the National Guard shot and killed college students. I remember when the Weather Underground blew up the ROTC building at University of Wisconsin. I remember that. We're not there. But I urge you to vote for the candidate that will not turn away from God and who will carry out God's instructions. Look at the ballot from top to bottom. Don't just focus on the top. Frankly, most of government gets done at the lower levels. And go to ballotpedia.org, ballot, B-A-L-L-O-T-P-E-D-I-A, if you want to find out where your candidates fall on the spectrum. So God has used America mightily, but God doesn't need America. America needs God. And it starts at home. It starts with the family. I pray that you all have wisdom in the coming days, weeks, and months. And I want to thank Pastor Ryan and Ken Henley for uh, trusting that I would uh, give more than just an almost good sermon. Thank you.